it's sort of an unusual uh, love affair because one, the age difference, right? 34 years apart. Uh, and, and two, it was at once romantic, um, mentor, mentee and uh, paternal. You know, like he was, uh, he, he was sort of like a father figure to her. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of movie land comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Two dozen silent features and about as many pizzas. It's our annual report on the Portinone Silent Film Festival with Lockie Heiss. Plus, one of the premieres at Portinone was a newly restored version of a Lon Chaney classic. I talked to the archivist at George Eastman Museum, who reconstructed The Unknown. And a silent star who's slowly getting her comedic reputation back. I talked to biographer Lara Gabrielle about Marion Davies. Be sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. And if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. And if you do, hooray for the bulldog. Last year, my first time at La Giornate del Cinema Muto, the Pordenone Silent Film Festival in Northern Italy, it was definitely a COVID festival with every other seat roped off and a shorter schedule each day to allow for sanitation between shows. This year, the festival's 41st, it was mostly back to its full traditional form, a packed house for a week of silent films from archives around the globe running morning to night. Our regular Portinone correspondent, Lockie Heiss, was just one of several Nitrateville members and past podcast guests I met up with in person and ate pizza and pasta with there. Now we talk about what we saw. So when you go to a thing like this, I mean, you see a bunch of films really fast and they kind of blur together. And I find that like a week later, I get like one image in my head from everything I saw during the week, which happens to be uh, Mujikin in Manolescu. Um, Ivan Mujikin, the, the Russian star in a, in a French film we saw with Brigitte Helm. It was very stylish. Uh, is there like one, one movie you remember from, from this week that we spent? Yes, for sure. I remember the white trail. I remember, I remember, um, the, the mountain man carrying the live fox down and having it like a belt around him. I think I didn't see that movie because I have no memory of that. Which one was this? Uh, oh, this was the, po- uh, it was, yeah. the Polish it was, skiing was, movie or something? Well, it's a mountain film. It's a Polish mountain genre film. And I think it was the most memorable or the, the most, like, like you say, the images were just so, just so there. And um, uh, the one I, that come, I come away with, uh, it was 
it was a wonderful film. And it's, you know, when you watch all these films, you can't see them all. But yeah, anyway, yeah. So you remember this amazing uh, combo acting between uh, Bridget Helm and uh, Lucy King. And, um, and that was a pretty memorable. Uh, I'm not sure if the, if the film that you saw was memorable all the way through, but it sure had some fantastic scenes, uh, you know, of the two actors going at each other. Yeah, no, I, I kind of can't quite remember what the plot was. I remember they were like con men for a while and then they kind of fell out and I'm not sure why they fell out. Um, other than that her husband showed up and was like flinging sculptures at his head and stuff. But, uh, other than that, I don't remember what went wrong in their relationship, but, but it didn't matter. Yeah. It, it was, it was an amor fou. So yeah, the two, the two uh, people were sort of Bonnie and Clyde in the sense that it was, <laughs> they were so inco- incandescent, uh, by each other together, the, the flame was too strong and it, it just couldn't maintain itself. And, uh, no, I really it, like, you know, Brigitte Helm. I, you know, I've seen her in things besides Metropolis finally in the last few years. And I mean, she's so good. She's very tall and, and slender. So she, and very angular. So she can just sort of slouch like nobody's business. You know, she'll be in some sheer, uh, silk dress and just kind of recline backwards for five minutes, and it's just kind of kind of amazing. So, um, I enjoyed seeing her in something. Uh, but yeah, I mean that's. I guess the fact that I didn't even see the movie that you liked the best points to the thing, which is you know this was a post COVID schedule. They were back to five programs a day. And you just can't do it all. You have to make semi-informed executive decisions about what you're not going to see so that you have the presence of mind to actually enjoy the things you do want to see. Yeah, this is uh, not a, a week for completists. Uh, <laughs> not a week for the you, week. You, yeah, I mean, you can do it, but then uh, you're either, unless you're a jet pilot with Benzedrine, you're, you're going to be... Um, you're going to be blurry-eyed even halfway through, and then you just won't remember it. It'll all be one like string of piano chords, right? And officials, <laughs> you know, things flashing, and uh, so uh, one has to yeah, cut your losses. And uh, um, there's always going to be films you wish you'd seen. Yeah, you just have to decide what are the things that matter to you, and seeing everything. I mean, like last year, they had a whole series of. Korean films with a banshee narrating them, which meant they weren't strictly silent since someone was talking over them, but they were pantomime films. And, you know, I saw one of those to be interested, you know, just to like know what those were like. But then I just kind of decided I don't need to be an expert on Korean silent films. I'll be okay if I don't do that. (laughs) Um, So I want to talk about The White Trail for a moment, even though you didn't see it. Uh, it, it is a uh, the genre of mountain films are thought of as mostly German or Austrian, and uh, the White Hell of Pitzpalu uh, is kind of the, the paradynamic mountain film. And the genre has this strange specificity where you have a couple, typically with some kind of discord or they're having some kind of issues, and then there's a, a third, usually a, a second man gets into the picture. They go all up in the mountain, and there's some uh, bad storm, and then 
somebody has to save somebody else. And uh, the, the genre is so odd that it's so rigid in that way. But And the, most of those things happen in this Polish film, but there is a very much different aspect to um, this one of the three people who, he, he uh, in, as the film goes on, he just gets into this uh, um, otherworldly like. And, and um, I don't know if you've ever read any of Algernon Blackwood. No. One of his more fam- famous stories is uh, called Glamour of the Snow. And the end of this film matches thematically the glamour of the snow to an amazing extent, where uh, one of the two men becomes fascinated with, with being outdoor. And, and it, you know, it's a fascination that will kill you. Yeah, and the, the, the film talks about that, you know, shows that in some length, and, and the idea that the, you know, that the that being outdoors and being so high has a sort of a, a death impulse is, is archetypal. It's not just with, with these two stories, but but this uh, movie really carries it out to a, a fascinating um, uh, description. And um, so anyway, I I was very happy to see that film because I'm a Blackwood fan and it's always fun to see a movie that, that matches Blackwood's uh, enthusiasm for, um, it's not just nature, it's pagan nature. And that's what we see in, in this film. I mean, this guy's carrying up this fox around and the fox seems to be okay with it, you know, just as a belt or something. And, and this is just, uh, just a uh, presentation of a character that you, you don't see hardly in any kind of movie in any way. And, and, um, you know, this film was able to carry that off. So, Huh. Anyway, Polish a Polish mountain film called The White Trail. It came out in 1932, so it's a late silent. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm sure glad I caught that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> so. Who knows? It may come again. Who knows? Um, well, yeah. No, it definitely reminds me of another one that I saw there. That was a a Czech or Slovak film uh, from 1929. Um, it, was only really referred to by its Slovak name, Poharach Poldolach, or something like that. Um, but it was referred to also as sort of over mountains, over valleys. Um, and it was basically a documentary about sort of folkways of Slovaks up in the mountains, you know, basically farm people. Some of it was their festivals. But a lot of the film was devoted to documenting basically horseplay. The, the boys having these games, you know, these very physical games that they would play, you know, a lot of them of the sort where like one person's legs are up by the other guy's hands and, and head and they're both having to walk in this weird, you know, in this uh, awkward position. And then it would have a name like, you know, the frog walk or something like that. And I mean, we saw dozens of these and you're thinking, well, that sounds pretty boring, but, uh, with, you know, folk music being played by, I think Gunther Buckwald was accompanying it. Um, you know, very lively, bouncy, uh, Eastern European folk music. And just this stuff of kids playing around, like little Laurel and Hardy's. I mean, it was totally entertaining. It was one of the movies where I sat on the aisle so I could make a quick getaway if I had to. But it totally held me for, you know, a hundred minutes of basically, you know, rural horseplay. Yeah, I mean, once again, it's just a, just a, a social uh, dance that you're just not going to see anywhere else. Um, but in this kind of uh, setting, and like you say, you're, you're just watching this socialization of 
children as they become adults and they all are having this ritual of bonding through dance and, uh, and, and through music too. So uh, you can just see these communities were very tight knit and, and all these things were part of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, not to give the impression that it was all documentaries, um, you know, one of the main, probably the, the largest festival devoted to an individual person this year or retrospective track, I guess you call it, uh, was, uh, uh, Norma Talmadge. And, yeah. you know, when I first saw that that was going to be part of it, I mean, you go to something like this and you kind of have the idea from the first year, what it should be like every year. So I was looking for the Ellen Richter of this year, you know, which is the, the, yeah. the German sort of action romance comedy star that we saw last year who nobody had ever heard of and then we saw like eight or ten of her films and by the end of it we're all like experts on ellen richter um well you know i was thinking norma talmage we've all heard of norma talmage it's not as exciting as discovering ellen richter from utter obscurity you know but the reality is we haven't all seen Norma Talmadge's film. She's a famous star, but her films are fairly hard to see. There was one Kino disc that had two movies on it. And other than that, I don't know. I mean, it's a lot of that stuff that Raymond Rohauer just kind of sat on, or he would advertise in his catalog that he had it, and you could rent it in 16 millimeter. But there was a distinct possibility that the film was actually still lost, and he didn't have any material on it. He was just claiming it in the catalog, because that's who Rohauer was. Um, yeah. So this this was our, our post-Rohauer chance to actually see what Norma Talmadge was up to. And uh, before I go into that, you tell me what you, what you thought of Norma Talmadge. Well, I came in very much the same way you did. Uh, I'd seen some of her films, uh, but not enough to make any, any sense of, of her as an actress. And uh, so there, at the end of the week, I, I still had feeling that we had only seen part of, of her work. I mean, that there's so much of it lost. Uh, and, uh, but you know, you see enough to get a sense. Uh, my sense was that she was a very good actress. I know that there was a discussion that when people wrote the film books of the seventies, uh, that one reason we don't know her was that she was not a good actress. And that's just who It was just that her films were gone and nobody was, if they weren't around, you know, you're not going to write about them. I thought she was an excellent actress. I do think her acting came more from the stage more of a theatrical, and I think that she was somebody who, as an actress who didn't mind looking bad for the part, and that might have cost her a bit because I, the, the the films that I saw, she was more a part of the um, repertoire of, of, the, of the other actors rather than it was a vehicle for her. Yeah, she wasn't always super glamorized. There's a couple of films we saw where she you know, was aged or whatever, and and that, um, and that didn't do her any favors in terms of, of the star quality, but that impressed me as an actress. Yeah. Well, I really liked her in the early Vitagraph one and two reelers that we saw. I mean, you saw why she stood out there. She had big eyes and, yeah. you know, a, a high wattage smile. And she was, she was very likable. Um, I did feel like when she got to Joe Skank, 
producing her films and incidentally becoming her husband, that she went for kind of the queen of suffering thing where she's doing, you know, Stella Dallas type stories where things really go bad for and the the evil dad of the wastrel son that she married and got pregnant by or didn't marry and got pregnant by, uh, you know, takes the baby away or something like that. And, you know, she winds up selling flowers on a street somewhere, you know, something suitably miserable like that. And I mean, I know that was big box office then. She was a big star, but it's just not something that appeals a great deal to me. You know, like a film like The Lady, directed by Frank Borzaghi, you know, had very lush playing, I think, by John Sweeney with it. And, you know, it's a, you know, uh, Borzaghi can really sweep you away. I mean, think of something like Seventh Heaven, which was only like a year or two later. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's got kind of a somewhat preposterous emotional story, but he can build it to such a crescendo that you're just going away with it. And, and the lady was sort of like that in that, even though I really didn't like the story and I found it kind of irritating, I still, you know, Borzaghi's direction and everything and some good twists in the story, you know, had me properly worked up and taken away, even though I was hating myself a little bit for falling for it. So, <laughs> Yeah, I, I I felt the same way with it. There was a kind of a one note there, and who's to say if the films we had uh, were just accidentally like that? But I don't see a lot of agency from her characters, other than you know being found, being put in misery situations. Uh, right. Uh, and that's kind of what you're talking about, and and that becomes uh, like you say, it can be annoying. That just may be the the accident of. Of, of the ones that we've said, you know, we, but, but like you said, maybe that was what, what was selling at the time. And they, they did more of those. And, um, yeah, I think it's what made her a star. So they just, they did them, you know, the audiences wanted that at that time. There was one that, that I think was awful matter because of its, uh, wit. And that is a film I liked a lot called the sign on the door. Yeah. I heard Brennan and it was a comic mystery disguised as a melodrama. And uh, uh, so it starts off kind of like what you're talking about, where she's kind of innocently in, and taken to a restaurant and finds that she's in, in the wrong place. And then that's a picture is taken that she uses blackmail. And all that kind of goes down exactly the, the road you're talking about. But then there's a uh, Brennan you know, pulls the rug out from under us. And, and there's a couple of wonderful reveals. And all of a sudden, we're, we're in a locked room mystery. Right, which is very rare. You know, I I I can't think of any any uh, kind of melodrama from that era that w- made that attempt. But even more interesting, it's a locked room mystery, and we're looking at the mystery from the inside of the room. Uh, you know, because we're seeing it from the point of view from the from the people who are stuck in the room, and they're watching the whole thing going on. So I I was very happy that film was included because I'm a huge Herbert Brennan fan and. I must have seen that when the, when they did the Brennan retro now back in the nineties, but I had forgotten that all. Right. So it has this very very funny ending, which I won't re- talk, you know I won't <laughs> reveal the ending, but 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 you know it's 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 all done. There's nothing. Um, it's all the the mysteries are all planted. You know, when you look back at the beginning, you saw that it was done. I think they call it honestly. Yeah, you know, there yeah. was no, there were no reveals that were that were dishonest. It was all there at the beginning, and you just missed it all. And and 
I'm, I'm, I always admire a film like that. They can carry that out so admirably, you know, and, and with such a funny end. All right. So, yeah. and one of the, uh, one of the Talmadge films also fit into the other main track of films, which was the the Ruritanian things. And she's in a she's in a version of a one of the Graustark stories, which is very much like the the Ruritanian story. So all these things devoted to the sort of fictional, somewhat comic adventure things that came out of the Prisoner of Zenda, and the idea of you know the stalwart Englishman going to you know, some little country off there in Balkan, wherever, and yeah. getting mixed up in various skullduggery there. But he's always sort of just, he's there for the fun of the adventure. He doesn't really yeah. have any loyalties to, you know, the Guelph party or the Ghibelline party or anything like that. <laughs> right. So, yeah. um, and, you know, you're talking about, genres sort of having the same plot over and over. I mean, that turned out to be definitely one. There's really only two Ruritanian plots. One is Prisoner of Zenda, which is the king has a double, and that's going to be useful to somebody. Um, And the other one is basically Roman Holiday. It's the the prince or princess doesn't want to marry whoever they have to marry, so they run away and you know, lead a normal life for a few days and see what, see what it's like for the common people. So what did you think of runaway princess? You know, I mean, that was an example of the, the Roman holiday genre. Definitely. As the title suggests, um, I wanted it to have a second draft of the screenplay. (laughs) I, I thought, I mean, it was, it was certainly stylish enough. There were a couple of pretty good comic moments, but they were usually over before they had much time to develop. And I just wanted, you know, someone needed to like take it in hand and, and punch it up with some, you know, some reliable gags or whatever. Um, Asquith was a pretty reliable director, but perhaps this was early in his work or who knows, but, but, but the pace is all wrong for that film, and there, it needed to be punched, like you say, punched up. And uh, and halfway through the film, when they're in, in London, the film takes a side tour into a fashion farce genre, which was which actually the best part. I thought. Well, that's the uh, but that's the problem with the whole film is if you take a detour into like a whole other genre, <laughs> and you're yeah, a fashion farce, and then you know you want to stay there. You don't want to go back into the kind of more boring story. Right. It's like, well, why don't you make, just make that movie? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. No, yeah. the really good one, though, was the Swedish one, um, His Majesty the Barber. I missed that, so you can tell oh. me what, what happened. Yeah. That, so. um, I mean, it's it's another uh, version of the Zenda plot, which is um, the the guy, the young guy, the handsome young guy, kind of looks like Ricardo Cortez, is the... Mm-hmm you know, is secretly the heir to the throne of the country next door. And he was snuck away during these various skullduggery uh, and raised by this barber. And so he's, he's like home from college, um, helping out his, his supposed grandfather by cutting hair in the, uh, in his shop and becomes very yeah. popular for that. All the girls are like coming and getting their haircut every day to see him. 
Um, but meanwhile, Granddad is like figuring out how to raise the money to get him back there uh, and make him the king. But it it winds up with a great uh, twist. I mean, even better than the one that's at the end of Runaway Princess. And it, you know, it's just one of those things. It's like. How did Hollywood not see this and buy it for a remake? Because it would have been, you know, a perfect movie for them just to, you know, turn into a comedy with Ramon Navarro or somebody, you know, a few yeah. years later. So well, they, they probably didn't see it. There was hundreds of films that came out over that time period, and if it didn't make, um, if it didn't have somebody champion championing it, um, you know, nobody saw it, and it just got, you know, just got was forgotten. Yeah, that was one of the things I thought about the Ruritanian films was that there wasn't anything as out there as some of those early Lubitsch films like The Doll or uh, uh-huh. uh, the Ossie Oswaldo ones. I can't think of the titles of them, but Kino put a bunch of them out. Um, yeah. They they were really wild looking, almost Dr. Seuss looking, <laughs> you know, at times and full of a sort of crazy gags. So nothing went quite that far. I mean, actually, the thing that came closest to that in some ways was uh, Three Weeks, the uh, the movie of the Eleanor Glynn novel, which yeah. most people kind of thought didn't really work. Gorgeous looking. I mean, directed by Alan Crosland, who also did uh, The Beloved Rogue, and in kind of the same vein. I couldn't really figure out the architecture of the castle in you know, in the home country. Um, cause it was, <laughs> it, it was, I think you would have had to look a long time to find, to find the country that, uh, they took that, uh, yeah, yeah. From. but I mean, it was just, it was these, these very abstract, almost brutalist sets that, uh, looked much more like they were on stage, but there was nothing realistic about that movie anyway. So whatever. Yeah. There, there was something that I read after I, I had a similar reaction to you watching it. And then I afterward looked up um, Eleanor Glenn and the, the, um, the story from the, the people knew what we didn't know. This would have been something that I would have actually been um, good for me to know before I saw the film, because it would have given me context. But at that point, um, let's see, the book was 1907 and she was separated from her husband as she was having an affair with the British aristocrat who was um, much younger than she was. And uh, that was uh, known. It was a big scandal at the time. And so uh, this movie replicates a lot of that, that uh, what happened there. And, and so people would have been watching that with a very different kind of uh, context. Than we right. Did. Yeah. You know, it replicates it, a lot of it, but it's a movie in 1924. So it really can't show a lot of it. I think that was the pro the biggest problem that the movie had was that it's promising us that it's, you know, going to get down on that tiger rug at some point and it can't do that. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I mean, it has a, it has a sheen to it, which is um, it's odd because it's just through the whole, the whole uh, film has a sort of unreality to it. So I think it's hard for, hard for us to get that point of view because it's, I mean, there are some things in, in stories that are very topical. It's, you know, and, then, and we can sort of see it, but we can't, we can't get the emotional context that, that way. And, um, you know, I think if we'd seen it with eyes from that era, we just would have a whole different 
feel for for what was going on. And uh, it's like how how in a hundred years people will look at Fifty Shades of Grey, you know, and they'll, yeah. they'll be like, <laughs> "What the hell was that?" So, all right. So I felt there were a lot of kind of heavy lifting movies late at night this year. Um, let's kind of go through those. I mean, first there was the the Gantz film, the DZM Symphony, the Tenth Symphony, which yeah. Gantz's usual idea of what it's like to be an artist in his case, you know, is basically the sufferings of Christ. Yeah. That's all in a day's work for the artist. Um, what did you think of that? I think that it's, I think any movie that has finds a way to have tableau vivant as a major part of its scene in the end is, is doing something amazingly spectacular because that's <laughs> just, uh, uh, you know, they have scenes of people frozen and not doing anything and some heroic attitude is, uh, is so uh, different than our concept of, of how to climax the film. I, I was I was impressed by the the audacity of the whole situation. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, it is this, this unchecked ego, and, uh, and I don't. Then we have some scenes of Gonson there somewhere, sort of light radiating from his head. Uh, <laughs> yeah. If it wasn't there, it felt like it was there. Uh, right. And <laughs> Symphony, you know, he's going he's going to outdo Beethoven. Yeah. yeah. Um, he's going to out Beethoven, Beethoven. Well, and I think kind of what he was out doing was intolerance. You know, he's like, okay, so yeah. we're just going to do all the arts at once in this new art form. So he did that. I mean, he's got uh, the guy, you know, composing a Beethoven like symphony, which John Sweeney had to improvise quite convincingly uh, yeah. in the performance. Uh, and then the, the, like you said, there's, there's a famous dancer who we see dancing on the, you know, on the side of a of a river, a stream, and at times scenes of her were sort of done like they're on the sides of pottery with, you know, a strip of images at the top of bottom. It's like kind of working everything into the movie. It was it was it was a heavy lifting movie for sure. I I, I yeah, I liked it. I'm glad I saw it. Not a movie I probably need to see again for a while. Right. <laughs> uh, but, but uh, you know, it, it just gives you, I, as someone who who has uh, the film at, at his fingertips, like this organ with, with 56 stops, and he pulls every stop off the organ and just hits all the chords he can, and then hits a few more of his head. You know, I mean, I, I have to admire <laughs> yeah. someone who's yeah. that kind of um, uh, gusto, and that's the... You're just not going to see a film. Well, I guess you could see Napoleon. I guess that would be. But I mean, right. the, the, the presentation was pretty spectacular, and uh, I, I just admired his uh, chutzpah. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, another one Sons of the Soil, the three hour Swedish Icelandic family saga thing that we saw. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. I, uh, I was really surprised at that film. I mean, the last hour petered out was was um, was not you know as good as, but the first two hours I thought were terrific and uh, and um, it's a Cain and Abel story, uh, you know about the two sons. One of them is good, the other one is, um, is sort of bad or evil. But, but what to make the story way more interesting is that 
is that the good son has a lot of issues himself by being too good. Yeah. So, you know, has too much going on. And, and the, uh, the bad son is, is bad because he's, he, he cares so much about, you know, his, his emotions run so high. So this is a very, a story, very, very complicated, uh, 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 characterizations, which is you know, difficult in silent film in particular, because it's, that's more of a lyrical presentation in dreamscapes. But this got into very, you know, complex character issues. And uh, I, I called it, um, because it was the key and able, I called it, it's not east of Eden. It's east and way north of Eden. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, no, I thought I, I thought it, I, very, yeah, I thought it worked out really well. Yeah, no, I mean it's just a real a f- good, very faithful adaptation of a really well plotted nineteenth century style, you know, family saga. Um, yeah. You know, I thought everybody's motivations and their path through life was really interesting and i thought the filmmaking was very clear about that i mean surprising how good it was for 1920 but you knew what everybody was thinking pretty much all the time which you know is not common necessarily back then um so yeah i mean i i I thought that was really kind of a kind of a great film and it's weird the guy only directed one more movie which not terribly surprisingly is also based on a big book, uh, based on Newt Thompson. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he just left the movies. Who knows why? I, it, you know, I couldn't find enough to see what happened, but, um, well, yeah, he definitely had talent and he had really talented actors in this. This, this movie surprised me in so many ways. I mean, I, I expected to see, um, like, a, you know, pretty landscapes, but that became a fairly minor part. And, and the, the man who played the uh, the father was just terrific. Uh, he was the Walter Houston of yeah, what right. Swedish Icelandic. I mean, I I just uh, was I, I you know first he found he looks like he's going to be kind of a nice father, then it looks like he's going to be a tyrant, and then you see sort of some kind of interesting combination of the two, and uh, and he has to change as the, as the story goes on. I, so there's a just um this is a. It's like a mini series that they were able to pull together in, in only two or three hours, uh, and uh, um, uh, for, you know, for nineteen twenty, uh, I just it was was like I say, I was uh, very happily surprised, and then and the music I thought was quite quite uh, you know was able to follow that story very well. I thought through, so it just came out um, as a as a great job all the way through. The ending was a little bit of a letdown, but I think that I think when you follow the, you mentioned that this was a good adaptation, and I think they just had to, they were trying to follow the story, and then that way there was a little right. I mean, it's it. it sort of becomes about the redemption of the the bad son who's driven out. It maybe takes a bit more time than it strictly needs for that, but I, I can see why that's you know it's an important part yeah. of the story if you just end it with the first two hours, which is really the family saga coming to a, a boil. And, and that's a different story. I mean, clearly he wanted to tell the story of redemption at the end. Yeah. Uh, another one, another one, the Manx men, uh, the Hitchcock film. Did you, did you go for that? I'm not sure if you did. Oh, I, I sure did. And I, I owe Alfred a big apology because I saw it uh, at, at Portononi when they did the hundred, year and I didn't think it was a very good film and 
um, when I was watching it again, we got there's got to a certain part of the film where uh, somebody's in the water and there's bubbles, and I must have fallen asleep. Uh, I thought that was the end of the film. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm watching the film, uh, you know, last uh, Saturday. I, oh wait a minute, this this is not the film didn't the film not doesn't end like this. It just keeps going. What's going on here? So, um, uh, yeah, no, I I I don't think it's Hitchcock's. Uh, best silent film, I think, what that is to be the lodger and blackmail. But I think that this, um, I thought that they were able to 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 um, just squeeze out every moment of the interest by you know by very careful attention to the music and the score. But what do you think of that? No, I mean, I I it's one of the Hitchcock British silence that I had not seen, and I was really impressed. It's not like any other Hitchcock film. It's it's again it's a it's a apparently a good novel about a romantic triangle that just goes worse and worse because the two who are really in love neither one of them can just be honest with the third guy who's just a good guy and kind of right. doesn't deserve to get screwed over but because they can't just rip that band-aid off and be honest with him it just you know things get worse and worse and I thought it was just, it was very intensely directed, uh, you know, with a focus on the three characters. You know, again, you knew what they were thinking all the time. Uh, you knew how deep it was getting them into trouble. Uh, and then there was just this wonderful score by Stephen Horn that had bits of, you know, it, it had like Celtic bits to it uh, where that was appropriate. But it was also just a good dramatic score for score for a uh, a silent film. But yeah, really, you know, beautifully done, a great looking print. I mean, that's I mean that's the thing that you just have to feel about going to something like this is you're seeing silent film as good as it gets now. Yeah. If it, in some cases you will see absolutely clean prints that look like. They were made yesterday, probably look better given the changes in projection technology than they did back then. Uh, being played for by live musicians of very high caliber. I mean, just it's it's such a beautiful way to present all these films, and it's nice when they they really live up to it. And I felt, you know, I felt good about a number of things that I never would have suspected, uh, like Sons of the Soil turning out to be so good. In in first class presentation. In terms of the mainstream, did you hear the, the few um, catching uh, phrases of, um, of uh, Vertigo uh, in certain parts of the uh, musical score? Um, no, I think it must have been too sleepy to pick up on that. Yeah, but... there there was a, a little hint of um, Bernard Herrmann here and there. And <laughs> I was completely. You know, it was very uh, subtle, but uh, that was uh, they were matching scenes where. You start seeing these compulsions going into play a bit, and 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 I have to give um, yeah the, the score credit for being able to direct me toward toward these elements that Hitchcock would find again and again in his career, and you know where the where people because of love or, or passions just have this uh, fixation on things they can't control or, or get away from, and you know that that was sort of a way to kind of say, oh, look, it's happening even here in the yeah. balance period. He's doing the same thing. It was very, it was very well done and uh, very, um, 
you know, it's what it's what you come to to, to Portimoni to to uh, see those kind of um, productions. Read more about the 2022 Portinone Silent Film Festival at Nitrateville. Links to threads about it will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. A circus performer has no arms and pulls off amazing feats just using his feet. A woman in his act is traumatized by the thought of men's arms pawing at her. Seems like an armless guy is just what she's looking for, right? But he's actually faking it to evade the police, painfully binding his arms for his act. A twisted tale of body horror and sexual dysfunction, Todd Browning's The Unknown with Lon Chaney and Joan Crawford was once lost, like Browning and Chaney's London After Midnight famously is. Unlike that film, a print of The Unknown was found in 1968, and as silent movies go, it's relatively easy to see today, available on DVD and playing on TCM regularly. But now George Eastman Museum has reconstructed a new version of The Unknown, with footage from another rediscovered print. The extra 15 minutes don't radically alter the film, but the additions add shading to Cheney's character and the film's general air of morbid romance and diseased desire. Eastman's senior curator in the moving image department, Peter Bagroff, introduced this new version of The Unknown at Portinone this year. I spoke with him and two of his colleagues in Rochester who worked on the restoration. First, I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Anthony Labati, Preservation Manager at the George Eastman Museum. And I am Peter Bagroff. I am the Senior Curator of the Moving Image Department at the George Eastman Museum. And I'm Gordon Nelson, Assistant Curator of Digital Collections in the Moving Image Department of the George Eastman Museum. There's a famous story about the unknown being rediscovered in the 60s. Who wants to tell that? Well, do you want to jump in? Because you have more uh, information about... But okay, How yeah. true it might be. Yes, yeah, fine. Peter. I can try. So it is one of the most famous anecdotes in the history of film archives. That the Unknown was a completely lost film until uh, Henri Langlois, who was the founder of the Cinémathèque Française and you know a role model for all the archivists those days, uh, he discovered the film in the 60s at the Cinémathèque Française under its own title. But the problem was that they had so many reels of film with a label unknown on it. Yeah. So before that, they were sure that it's just one of those unidentified films. So this is the, uh, this is the apocryphal story. The reality may be much more dull because it looks like he purchased the print in the late 40s, 1949, and he duplicated it on safety stock 10 years later. And I cannot understand how he could really lose the film just several years after that. So maybe he or James Carr, the uh, founder of the Eastman Museum Film Department, just made this story up because it sounded very fancy. But anyway, it's a beautiful legend. 
that was the one and only print that it was from at the time and or it has been for these many years and which i think ran about 50 minutes the notes were saying yes it um uh, depending on the projection speed uh at like 24 frames per second like which i believe is on the dvd it runs just under 50 minutes 49 minutes and something seconds okay and now it's up to what was it about 66 minutes at uh, Portnone? yes that's correct all right so tell me about uh this other print and and reconstructing a more complete version well let me tell you about the print itself how it was found and then uh, anthony and gordon will tell you more about the reconstruction work because they were putting the puzzle together. So um, before I joined the Eastern Museum, I used to work at Gusfilmer Fund of Russia, the Russian State Film Archive. And we discovered there a lost, incomplete film with Lon Chaney called Pay Me from 1917. It was very short, it's half, just half of the film. So the idea was to show the film and have some kind of addressing for it. It's a little bit too short for a screening of its own. And I was thinking about a Lon Chaney retrospective. We had there a print of the unknown. So the Langlois angle was very famous. And I was absolutely sure that what we have is uh, a duplicate either from uh, the Francaise or from the Eastern Museum. Because I, one thing I forgot to say that the nitrate that Langlois found was later sent to the Eastman Museum. We have it here in Rochester, it still exists. And when uh, we started looking at this Russian print, we realized that it's a different version with Czech intertitles and with some scenes that we do not remember. Uh, so what happened is it was a Czech uh, distribution print from the 20s, which must have been captured by the German army during the World War II. Then at the end of the war, 1945, uh, the Soviets took uh, uh, the German prints, because the Eisfriedmarkie of the German National Archive, um, the prints went uh, either to America or to Russia. They were basically divided, separated. Uh, then it was duplicated in Russia, and then the nitrate was repatriated to Prague, where it currently is. So uh, then the Eastman Museum, where I wasn't working at yet at the time, uh, borrowed the uh, nitrate print from Prague, compared it with the one that we have here with the French titles, and then they started putting the puzzle together. There's not really, like, whole new sequences. What really were the differences that were apparent to you when you first saw it? Well, I would say the whole opening of the film with the little boy up in the bell tower with the older gentleman looking down at the, at the circus and then getting money from that older gentleman to go see the circus. Then shots, once they're inside the circus tent, you have all the audience reaction uh, shots that seem, that have been missing in the French print for decades. Um, there are maybe not full sequences, but um, big chunks. Uh, there's a character named uh, Castro, uh, I believe played by Frank Lanning, who is basically cut out of the French version, and his scenes are back, and there's a scene with a fortune teller uh, reading tarot cards for Joan Crawford that has been completely missing. Other than that, it was just uh, bits of shots here and there. Gordon, do you want to jump in with uh, 
what you were finding? Yeah, yeah, there's, um, you know, of course, uh, to, to repeat Anthony, the beginning is, is probably the most dramatic. There are uh, just some extended sequences um, with, with the character Alonzo, there's uh, a bit more of um, the, the body, the, uh, the armless actor who was playing uh, Lon Chaney's you know, body double in the film. There's more scenes uh, of that actor using um, his legs to do things, you know, such as uh, pour wine and, and do other things, pouring tea, um, smoking a cigarette. And so there were, those were things that, uh, for, for who knows why, they weren't in the French version. There, so a lot of additional detail. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so things like that were, were present. Uh, I mean, there, it feels like a, just a, a wealth of subtleties has been added with, with, the, uh, with the joining of the two prints. So did somebody just cut it down because they thought it needed to be streamlined in France? What, what's the story? Do you know? We don't. We don't because there was nothing, you know, nothing sexual. And then the French wouldn't really cut that out. Uh, <laughs> nothing really political. I think, well, maybe something was not aesthetic enough for them. But what happened to the film, it became much more, I don't know, straightforward, if you will. Because, for example, starting the film just with an establishing shot of the circus, that's very dull. That's a very banal way to start a film. Now, when you have a little boy that will completely disappear from the picture, who is walking up to his grandfather and then looking from, from a bell tower, that's a very strange way to start a film. And it is a very strange film. It adds a completely different viewpoint, you know, from, this, from the top. So I think it actually, if you, if you really cut the film and, and, and if, if you leave the very condensed story like the French version has, it becomes extremely, uh, not, not very believable. It's a very artificial story, though. But when you add all of those little psychological details, when you digress all the time, when you show other characters, when you uh, show some reaction shots which don't really move the story, it becomes a very believable thing. It, it is a very psychological film, and you only get it when you see the complete version, I think. Mm -hmm. May I expand a little on the, the boy in the bell tower? This is, of course, speculative. But um, you know, one of Browning, of course, he's famous for creating his own legend, his own biography. And one of the stories about Browning is that he ran away to the circus at a young age and uh, was, was indeed fascinated by the circus as a, as a, as a boy. And uh, you know, one could speculate that that boy at the beginning is, a, is possibly a stand-in. Hmm. No. Throw it out there. I don't know. I mean, why not? But uh, you know, he, he, he had that as, a, as part of his uh, identity. So you discovered that there was a difference between the prince and then what happened? Well, luckily, we had a, cop, a copy of the cutting continuity from 1927, dated sometime in June, just after the film was released. So we were using that as our guide. And we've had this in the collection for years. We were planning more about maybe 15 years ago just to redo the film with uh, titles that were more uh, period appropriate to it. And, but we never really got around to doing the title work on it. We started playing around with it, but then this other print shows up and 
we're looking at the differences. So we're going to, we're trying to figure out, okay, so what scenes go where? Luckily, this continuity was our guide to it. It has lists every shot in the film with how long the shots were, uh, whether, you know, should they be in black and white or should they be tinted a color? And according to the continuity, continuity, this film was just in black and white. There was never any tinting with it at the time. And that was our roadmap that we followed. Gordon? Yeah, I mean, we when the first, uh, from a technical standpoint, it was it was really pretty um, intense editing experience yeah. of merging the two prints um, because they both have the, both prints had shortcomings in in some ways. Uh, the Czech print was, had a lot more heavy wear and tear on it, and um, more sort of splices where there had been handling damage. And um, but they and the French French also had some some significant and unfortunate uh, missing gaps here and there just in terms of like a shot being broken and having splices done in the middle. So in a, in a lot of ways both both prints were um, used as filler material when when a section of even a few frames was missing. Um, my objective all the, the entire time is to just give as many frames of the original as possible and, and, and have it be, you know, the most complete. That was, that's always been, I think, my objective in, um, in merging the two prints. So, so showing every frame um, and, and borrowing, even if there's a gap of one frame in one shot uh, from, the, from the French or Czech and, and using um, using the alternate prints as patching material. That was done a lot in, in, the, in the edit. So they looked enough like each other that you could do that effectively? It, it didn't create a, an obvious jump to the other print? Well, that's part, part of the, I think, the challenge is to mask when there's an obvious jump. And that's, that comes down, there's a, there's a bit of sleight of hand happening with our process of um, matching the shots, matching the positions of the of, of how the shot is framed, and then matching the grading of the shot to get the contrast to look even and uh, and um, consistent between the two the two prints. Well, we're lucky because uh, both prints come from the same negative, which is not always the case, because very often we have, especially for big films, when this was you know big MGM title. Um, we would have two negatives, one for the domestic release and one for, for the foreign release. And then you are not supposed to marry them, you know, because sometimes they were completely different shots and different takes and different acting. You do it sometimes when you're missing a big chunk of film, but it's not very accurate. So we didn't have this moral dilemma here. They both come from the same negative. It is probably the foreign release negative. It may not be the best negative because it doesn't look as it's it's it, it's it's wonderful cinematography, but the quality of the prints was not pristine, and we can see some print rules on the negative. We think that the American negative might have looked a little bit better. Yeah, I mean, with, with having this cutting continuity, you, I mean, you really had a firm roadmap. So there was this wasn't the kind of restoration where you're kind of creating scenes based on what seems like it would have gone there in 1927 or anything. I mean, you, you really, I mean, if you had the timing of shots, you really know what you had to put together. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. This being said, we also have the music cue sheet, which has the exact length of the film. And uh, the problem is that uh, based on the continuity, every single shot is there and the length is accurate. And yet we're still missing about, well, two minutes, two minutes or so. And we have no idea where, where that came from, what happened. So there is always, there's still room for improvement. Yeah, we, I mean, there, it's, it's possible that we could go through it. It'd be a really close accounting process to try to figure out what's, what footage is missing from our shots. Of course, I, I've written down some things like there are uh, a total of 748 shots in the film. So, so we'd have to go through all of them and time them. Again, I mean, may, may, you know, the, the foreign negative and the domestic negative might have had different length, which is, by the way, very likely yeah. the case, right? So this may be an explanation. Oh, so you, you're reconstructing the foreign negative from probably a continuity of the American negative? Well, yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. yes. All right. And when you were at Portnone, you mentioned that uh, maybe there's another can labeled unknown somewhere that will <laughs> solve this. Oh, sure. Easily. I mean, I, the thing I, I, I keep quoting all the time is from uh, from Alexander Horvath, who was the director of the Austrian Film Museum. There are no archival discoveries. They're just bad cataloging. And oh. this this story is exactly the case uh, in France and in Russia and everywhere. But what is funny, by the way, apparently I read recently that the Italians were aware of the Czech print and at a certain point they duplicated it and showed it, but they never tried to compare it with the French one. Hmm. Yeah, I read in the notes that it said that uh, the two, each of them had flaws, but they were very complementary. You know, it's kind of the old movie thing of the two pieces of the locket that fit together perfectly. Um, tell me about what you had and how it went together. I was just, I mean, we were pretty lucky. So, you, you, yeah, like with the the opening of the check print, you, you, you've got all these scenes, we're following it along the continuity, and then it cuts to the, the long shot of the, the uh, circus tent. So now we have some overlap there. Then it goes inside the, the circus, and we're back to the check print that has like, well, here are all these scenes that have been, all these shots that have been missing. Uh, also, like the reaction shots in the audience with the with the sailors, and so and that's how it kind of went throughout the whole film. That uh, the bit maybe then there was something in the in the French print that wasn't anymore in this uh, in the uh, the Czech print. So um, it's like okay, so we'll take this chunk from here, and it's it's all all fitting together pretty nicely. And you know, it's one of those lucky, really lucky instances. Because uh, it doesn't always happen so so smoothly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and uh, I'm sorry, but one one thing to to talk about that further is one thing we realized when we were putting it together was that we absolutely need both sources. It's yeah. not it's not you can't do one without the other. You can't have a complete version without without really having both them. Both are key to to making this happen. And and I'll, as standalone versions um they they're both to me much weaker films missing a lot of additional detail yeah what's the the check one like by itself it's it's very choppy and disjointed um although while it has uh some more maybe plot details because of its uh condition issues i, I think it would be a much much less uh smooth experience viewing it 
Yeah, I mean, when we had the exactly same shots, we prefer to take the French one. It was just that the condition of the print is better. All right, so you put it together, and then you're thinking, what do I do with this now? People already know the unknown. It's not going to be this great discovery of a completely unseen title. So what was the idea of how you introduced it to the world? Well, I can answer that question, because the, uh, that's what my, we have the students of the um, Al Jeffrey Selting School of Film Preservation. And we are telling them it's very difficult then to promote your restoration when it is done. So they asked us, you know, how are you going to promote the film? And the answer was, we will sit back, relax, and see how the film lives a life of its own. So it was shown in Portanone two weeks ago. We already have five requests for screenings all over the world. For a film like this, I think we can be completely, you know, it'll, it'll find its way. Yeah. Well, yeah, tell me about uh, the Portanone screening. Um, yeah, you had a music score by, oh, I'm going to screw his name up, Jose Maria Serralde Ruiz. Did I get it right? Yeah. Yes, yes. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> yeah, tell, tell me about that presentation. That was the, the premiere? Yes, that was the premiere. And uh, he wrote, well, a lot of piano scores and some scores for small groups of instruments before, uh, some for Mexican films. He's Mexican. Uh, but this is his first large orchestral score. And for the for a first orchestral score, it's really very mature work. You know, the idea was to make it to make it Spanish, but not real Spanish, the way Spanish would sound in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, so this was the idea. Uh, then what I really liked about the score, you shouldn't really highlight the, the horror and the pathology in the film. Either way, there is too much of it. It's, you know, it's eccentric enough uh, with the arms being cut off and everything else. So the way that there were a lot of uh, lyrical and, uh, you know, uh, eccentric and uh, even sarcastic pieces of music really helped. It, I think it, it, it made it a very multidimensional experience, what it should be for Browning in general, for this film in particular. I think it's one of his best, absolutely best films. Oh, yeah. So I think, I, I think it did justice to the film. Yeah, no, it was really nice, and it did a nice job of bringing in the kind of Spanish circus music where it was where it fit the story, but otherwise just having an atmospheric score for the the intensity of the production. Well, yeah, and then also we we always talk about the unknown as a Lanchen as a as a vehicle, which it was, uh, because John Crawford was not a big name, but you know, not only is she a big name now, but she had. That, that screen presence already, and she was very much impressed by the film and by working with Lon Chaney. She wrote, writes about this in her memoirs, and uh, she's very interesting. She is not the classical uh, John Crawford we're used to. She has, uh, I think, the toughness, and she has the sex appeal, but she is much more uh, naive and innocent. It's pretty difficult, and uh, you know, to make her an important part of the story, uh, the music does a lot for that. Okay, so it's it's going out into the world. You've got requests for it to play elsewhere. Um, then what? What do you think will happen next with this version? Well, I mean, I think I think that the version will eventually replace the previous ones. What's the point of looking at a chop film when there is a complete one? As simple as that. I mean, uh, we are talking to one company about a uh, DVD Blu-ray release. 
uh, we're still negotiating that. So we'll see, but I'm sure if not this company, then the other one will release it. And so it will be available for home video as well. I don't have any, any doubts about that. Yeah, because it'll, it'll go out of U.S. copyright next year, I think. On January 1st. Right. So they're lining up to get the unknown now. Yeah, no, so, so it will be as, as known as possible, I think. <laughs> the, the only thing that I'm thinking about all of those archives uh, that have uh, prints duplicated either from us or from the French, right, they would be of very little use now, which happens all the time when there is a reconstruction of, uh, of a film, when you get a more complete version. This is happening, you know, this happens so often with the old prints of, I don't know, uh, Intolerance and uh, Birth of Nation and Napoleon, all of the big films, Metropolis. Uh, so same, same thing here. If you want to show the real thing, you know, you would you should get the authentic one. The one that is yeah. as close as possible to the yeah. authentic one. Let's be <laughs> let me be accurate. Right. Yeah, I mean as someone who owns, you know, the same film on probably four different formats in some cases, I know how that works. So um I, l- I look forward to owning the the unknown again. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, anything else that you want to say about uh restoring films like this i don't know i i this was a real this was a real treat i've i've been a fan of the film for decades you know my first encounter with it was a bootleg uh, vhs tape from i don't know if you remember foothills video yeah. uh, back in the, the late 80s and early 90s uh, so i got my seven dollar and 95 cent vhs tape of that back in 92 and even then, I always felt, well, there has to be a little more to this uh, film than I'm seeing here. But uh, and then gradu- graduated to my Laserdisc and then the DVD. And so having a chance now to work on it and bring it back to something that was close to what it was in 1927 was a real thrill and pleasure. I'm, I'm happy about it. <laughs> Yeah, and it's been it's been a wonderful uh, collaboration within our department. Um, we've it's every step has been enjoyable. It's 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 been a hard hard project, but um, as we mentioned earlier, things things have fallen together pretty pretty well with it, and uh, it's it's just been a, a it's been fun. It's it's made our 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 professional life fun. I think to come in and and uh, live with this film for the past five years. Yeah. Well, I would add that, you know, it's very important that this was a collaboration between many archives and archivists. It wouldn't have been possible, you know, if Landois was not a friend of James Carter in the first place, back in the 60s and 70s, then if there was no August Film Fund in Russia, and no Narodny Fidmovy Archive in Prague, and, you know, that, that then there was uh, a collector, John Marsalis, who helped us with the, with the continuity. So this is the way you reconstruct the film, when you try to get the whole world involved. What happens every now and then in film archives, somebody would discover a unique element or a more complete version of a film. And they would be so obsessed with uh, possessing this restoration that they would do it on their own. And uh, the film would not benefit from that because you really should work collectively. You should really spread the uh, the word and join forces. And then you can try to make it as authentic as possible.
watch for news about upcoming screenings of The Unknown, and a video release, perhaps next year, at nitrateville.com. Strange is the story of silent film star Marion Davies, most famous for a film she was never in, Wonderkind Wells' Citizen Kane. Untalented Susan Alexander Kane, keeping house with Tycoon Kane in his vast gothic mansion, became to audiences the image of real-life Hearst mistress Davies. Restoring her name has been the aim of archivists and film programmers, screening talented comedian Davies' films like Show People and The Patsy. More recently, independent video producers Ed LaRusso and Ben Modell have put out new editions of films like The Restless Sex, When Knighthood Was in Flower, and Beverly of Graustark, showing audiences long unseen sides of vivacious Hearst star Marion. Now comes biographer Lara Gabrielle with Captain of Her Soul, The Life of Marion Davies from University of California Press. From Oakland, we spoke with scribe Gabrielle. So what got you interested in writing about Marion Davies anyway? Well, I've always been a classic film fan. I mean, ever since I was a kid, uh, you know, a really little kid. And when I was about 13, I got as part of a birthday present this little book called The Times We Had, um, which, as you know by now, um, has been marketed as Marion Davies' memoir. It's not really Marion Davies' memoir. Um, but I read it, and I thought this woman has had an incredibly interesting life. And she was always, even from that young age, you know, she was always at the back of my mind as somebody who was really interesting. And it surprised me that there was not a lot written about her. I mean, there was, of course, The Times We Had, there was The Giles Book, uh, but that's it really. Uh, so I was, um, she was, she was always sort of there. I started my blog in 2011, realized how much I loved the research and the writing and, uh, was putting out all these posts with, you know, tons and tons of research. And people started asking me, uh, if I would ever want to do something bigger. And I said, yes. And so who would I write about? And Marianne, I couldn't shake. Marion Davies. She was the most interesting person that I could think of. And so I um, just tried to think of other people, couldn't think of anybody else, found her papers, went down to LA, started the process, and that was nine years ago. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is like, what existed on her? I mean, one of the things obviously that does not exist is this fantastic treasure trove of love letters between her and William Randolph Hearst. There's just they're much too discreet for that so what was there to draw on yeah well i did actually find some of their well i did find some of the letters um there's there is uh, there are some things in marion's papers some of his poems to her um and there's this other guy who actually died uh some time ago who assembled he for somehow i don't even know how he got all these things but he got um this 
giant trove of, uh, of information, letters and telegrams and things like that. And he put them together in a book on Hearst um, that I uh, have found and, um, and used a lot of what he had. Um, so, so yeah, there, those, those things do exist a bit, but there, one thing, one advantage that I have, you know, in, in relation to Giles, for example, um, is that when Giles was writing his book, these archives didn't exist. Um, you know, the papers, for example, of Claire Booth Luce, the papers of, uh, you know, all these other people who were important in Marion's life, had Hopper's papers, that kind of thing. Um, those archives didn't exist for him. So I was able to get into a lot of stuff that he wasn't able to get into, but he had the advantage of having person to person interviews with all these people that Marion, uh, that Marion knew and they're all dead now. So I wasn't able to do that, but I was able to, and you probably read in the book, I was able to get his tapes, his interview tapes of, you know, these people that he, uh, that he interviewed. So I have him looking at him right now. Um, which was just so magnificent. Yeah, no, I was thinking of that when I read a qu- across a quote from uh, Dick Powell, and of course, oh, I yeah. know, I know, Dick Powell, you know, died probably before you were born. So, um, yes, well, that actually came from the Swanberg papers. Okay. That the Dick Powell information came from the um, the. It's actually a really interesting story. I was at the Columbia Library looking for other things. I was looking for uh, information on Joseph Urban, and uh, I was asking the people what they had, and I came across the Swanberg papers, and I was like, oh, my God. So Swanberg, (laughs) I I should say, was a, a... Probably the first really serious biographer of Hearst. Yes, well, there there were a couple of of serious biographers of Hearst before that. One of them, the main one, was Cora Older. Um, but this was probably the most comprehensive, I would say, up to that point. It was, um, uh, you know, the the late fifties. So talk about not having archives. But the problem with uh, Citizen Hearst in terms of, you know, as far as Marion was concerned, is that Marion did, didn't participate in that biography. Um, but he interviewed all these amazing people and he he had, uh, you know, notes on their uh, interviews and he kept them in like a shoebox. And when he <laughs> died, I guess, they do- he donated this shoebox to, uh, to Columbia. And I found them and went through them and it was very very revelatory um so the dick powell stuff comes from those papers all right well let's let's dig into marion's life um i remember someone referred to her once as kind of the last 19th century you know actress mistress you know that that head hmm. of you know she was she was one of the last ones to sort of be kept by the stage door Johnny who won the competition for her hand uh the sort of thing we've all seen in old movies and you know the the next generation of women who really aren't any younger than her would be like Norma Shearer people who you know went and married Irving Thalberg and that made her the queen of MGM and that sort of thing um so yeah i mean she she seems to have been trained by her mother as her sisters mm-hmm. were to 
use her beauty and stage presence and whatever else she had in the way of talents, you know, to land that rich guy. And it, that that was just what it was all about. Right. And it, it's, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting thing to talk about because Marion uh, was always trained, you know, she was, she was sort of trained in this, um, in this, Way Anita Luce called it the G, the Gigi tradition, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, uh, the, this tradition how to please a man, right? But the aim, the goal, was always to get married. The end goal was always to attract this wealthy man and get married. And that was the way that Mama Rose, Marion's mother, uh, felt that Marion and her sisters were going to get out of Brooklyn. That was the that that was their ticket. She thought was to go into the chorus, attract these wealthy men, and marry them. But Marion got herself into a little bit of a situation, right? Because she fell in love. Love was never really part of the equation for Marion's mother. Um, she didn't really think that it was as important, of, of course, as, as attracting these wealthy men and getting yourself out of, uh, out of Brooklyn. And this was the situation for women in general. It wasn't just her family. Sure. Women didn't have a very, um, didn't have a lot of opportunities at that point in time. But Marion fell in love with somebody who she couldn't marry. And that was, she found herself between a rock and a hard place because she had always been trained that she was to get married. And she couldn't marry the man that she loved. Yeah, no, she's sort of like, Nell Gwynn or something. I mean, she's, you know, mm -hmm. she finds a king and, you know, Hearst was as close to a king as anybody in America. But at the same time, mm -hmm. you know, she can only ever be the mistress. She can't actually sit on the throne. Yeah. And they were really in love. Uh, they, you know, Marion said in her autobiographical tapes, I had plenty of opportunities to get married, but how can you marry when you're in love with somebody else? Now, she had a successful enough stage career. I mean, I'm not going to say that it was like a l famous, long-running one, but you know, it it, it's, it's it did okay. yeah. it did its job to get her the attention that got her Hearst. Um, mm -hmm. And she had fun. I have to say that too. She the stage the stage was really fun for her. It was uh, the most joyous time in her life. She always remembered, uh, you know, to to friends and things. She would rarely talk about, after she retired, she would rarely talk about her movies. Uh, she found that a little bit dull, but she would, she would regale friends with stories of the chorus and how much fun she had and who was going out with whom. And yes. So, so she really loved that. Yeah. Now when she, so she goes from there into the movies and uh, I was just looking for the name of the, there was another guy that was sort of like the, the practice Hearst, uh, who was yeah, the, Paul the Block. Yeah. Um, yeah. and who was he? Paul Block was, uh, another media personality. Uh, he eventually became the head of the block communications, uh, firm, which still exists today, uh, out of Toledo, Ohio. He was, he was sort of this up and coming, uh, mogul person. He was in advertising at that, at that point in time. But, uh, he was also a stage door, you know, he loved the, um, uh, he loved the, the, the stage and he would go to the stage door and meet these girls and he and Marion had a little, um, 
boyfriend girlfriend thing going. Um, it wasn't it wasn't super serious. It was more of a dalliance than than anything. But they were going together, uh, and he would take her to parties at, the, at, at Delmonico's, and they would um, they would meet Paul Block's friends there, and that was the first place where she met Hearst. And he yeah. winds up producing her first movie. He does, uh, yeah. Which was nothing special, but nevertheless served the job of introducing the idea that she could be in movies. Yeah, so that was Runaway Romany. He was the one who produced that, and actually, interestingly enough, he uh, he had gone to Hearst before, uh, you know, because he didn't really have the artistry or the experience to be producing movies. Hearst was sort of new in this um, uh, was sort of new in this world, and he didn't. Well, he was risk averse, so he had said no. He had turned him down, and yeah. and then somehow, nevertheless. Uh, before he knows it, Hearst has a new girlfriend, and she wants to mm-hmm. be in the movies, or he wants her to be in the movies. Probably more accurate, right? To that's say. more accurate. Yeah, right. And so suddenly, he's a movie producer with a star of his own. Right. Well, he was already a movie producer. That's kind of important to note. He he didn't form Cosmopolitan for Marion. Um, Cosmopolitan was. Uh, was a studio like really like any other. There were there were multiple cosmopolitan stars. Alma Rubens was a cosmopolitan star. Oh, okay. So there there's been sort of a misunderstanding of what exactly cosmopolitan was uh, in history. People think that it was like Marion Davies Studio. It wasn't. It wasn't. Um, he certainly put lots and lots of money into promoting Marion Davies films, but cosmopolitan was its own thing. Well, yeah, I have. Uh, I just happen to have on my desk uh, another. Cosmopolitan film that uh, Ed LaRusso put out uh, on DVD, uh, Straight is the Way. Um, Oh, cool. Yeah, I I saw a uh, I saw a Kickstarter for that or uh, Kickstarter or some ad or something for that. Yeah, uh, because it's one of the things that Marion made sure were saved along with a lot of her early films. um, Yeah. Library of Congress. Exactly. No, she was she was wonderful about she was very um, she had a lot of foresight about preserving her own movies, which is which is wonderful. She um, she didn't really uh, she was a working actress. She didn't really enjoy being a star the same way that Joan Crawford did and all of that. But she was proud of her work and she kept her movies and sometimes showed them to her nieces and nephews and um and and everything was great but she uh we we really owe her a lot for saving her her own films and and other films that came her way yeah 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 Yeah, so i mean this is the period now we've all read that hearst wanted her to be in fancy dress things and she Mm kind of leaned more in a comedic direction which she eventually got to play but uh he kind of stood in the way of that he wanted her just to be you know beautiful on the screen and admired by everybody Uh he wanted people to see her the way he saw her and he had a bit of a blind spot for uh other people's perspectives so uh it was it was a bit of a detriment to her at first, but she found she found her way. You know, like when in movies like When Edward Was in Flower, 
you see this this funny Marion that keeps poking through, you know. So so she she did what she wanted to do. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, that's kind of the question I have. I mean, we always hear about these things being sort of you know lavish stiffs. Um, I remember in uh, Pauline Kael's essay on Citizen Kane, she made an offhand reference to Beverly Graustark being mm-hmm. the kind of dud that he liked to put her in. Well, it's nothing of the sort. I mean, now that we can finally see it, and I don't think Kale saw it because she was just like four. I mean, when it came, I have, I have issue after issue with Pauline Kale's essay on this right, day, yeah. but you know, but um, uh, but but no, I, I agree. She's totally wrong. Beverly of Graustark is is such a fun movie, and um, it's it's actually the. Beverly Graustark is 1926, and that's the era when Marion really started to started to really push toward comedy. Um, and so it's it's funny. I mean, it's a, it's it's a comedy. Beverly Graustark is a comedy. From between 1926 and 1929, she was really getting um, a lot more comedic roles. Right, and that uh, was her. That yeah, that was her um, her doing. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, you've got the show people and the Patsy and stuff like that there. I mean, oh. I remember seeing uh, uh, Her Cardboard Lover. And, oh, isn't that a marvelous movie? The cardboard yeah, lover? and yeah. I mean, there's this moment when Nils Asser, Aster has the, uh, like, the mustard plaster or whatever it is attached to him, and he has to peel it off. And he spends, like, a full minute making faces while he's trying to get this thing off. And the audience yeah. was like practically ready to stand up and cheer by the end of it. It was just such a tour de force of, <laughs> of mugging yes. basically. Yeah. And one thing that I really like about the cardboard lover is the fact that we get to see Marion's niece. We get to see Peppy. Oh, Peppy yeah, Letterer right. has a little role in that, um, which, which is really cool because she's so much like Marion in so many ways. Yeah. But I mean, the thing that all that makes me wonder is, I mean, what what were these costume stiffs that we sort of have the the history that that claims that that's what she was doing through much of the twenties? I kind of don't. I really can't point to one that exists. I mean, when Knighthood was in fire, it was certainly a lavish movie. But like you say, I mean, it has plenty of fun parts in it. So. Mhm. Yeah, there were things like um, the young Diana. Like, uh, like um, the Dark Star, like the Cinema Murders, like April Folly, uh, you know. So th- th- those movies were. It's it's not a it's not a lie or a myth that Marion was doing a lot of heavy drama with without a lot of comedy. It's just that there there were in you know within those movies, uh, at least like when that was in Flower and and other. Um, and other movies like that, there there was a great deal of comedy uh, in many of them. Yeah, I guess the, the, the point is really, I mean, she wouldn't have been a star if she had a 10-year career of making stiffs that bored everybody. So she had, mm-hmm. you know, she had to make movies that people actually liked. <laughs> you know, it was basically the thing. Yeah, I, I, guess, I guess so. Um, and although, although people, the, the papers started to get started to get tired of these movies, <laughs> you know, and I, I think that I, I say this in the book, 
too. You know, I quote some of the papers saying that people, there was one, there was one paper that said, oh, this role doesn't mean anything except that Marion Davies is in another movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so, uh, so people were starting to get tired of it. Uh, but, um, but, but, but you're right. I mean, they, they, they were movies that people generally enjoyed. Um, it's just that there were a lot of them. Yeah. Now, yeah. I mean, obviously Hearst, Ha, you know, comes into the question of how other people's papers reacted to Marion. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, there's some kind of funny stuff in the book about, you know, people taking any opportunity when they had to take a swipe at Hearst, you know, to in some way intimate his relations with uh, Marion Davies, the, the movie star. Um, sure. Always very subtly, though, because there was a sort of a moratorium on printing scurrilous rumors about people unless they ended up in court. So, um, so any, anything that was printed in those early days was, uh, based on something that, that happened that brought somebody into court. Um, yeah, whether it was that what Marianne called the Mary Davies murder case, you know, which is the, um, the party, at her sister's house where Marion wasn't there and a neighbor came out and shot her husband. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and, and, uh, so that blew up into a whole thing. Um, and, uh, and, and their names were mentioned together in the press then. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. do you have any sense of how well known that fact was? Uh, I mean, obviously known in Hollywood, but to normal mm-hmm. people, did they have any sense that, William Randolph Hearst and Marion Davies had come within a thousand miles of each other. Yeah. You know, um, I, one of the people that I talked to for the book was a guy named Bob Board, who is a, a big Mary was sadly he passed away, but he was a big Marion Davies super fan from the time he was a little kid. And, uh, he told me that his father would say to him after they came out of a Mary Davies movie, you know, she's with Hearst. Okay. So, um, so, so yes, people, people knew, um, it was not really reported, but, but things get around, you know, and people hear about stuff. And, um, so, so I think that it was really like an open secret. Um, everybody kind of knew, but nobody really talked about it. Yeah, which makes it kind of funny. I mean, you know, for all his power, Hearst is is you know doing sort of fairly low rent things to avoid being in the same place as her on the same uh, mm-hmm. boat or train. You know, whatever it is needed to kind of give them the fiction. You know, right? Thin- and and exactly. I mean, he was he was married. He was legally married, and that would and he was a powerful man. So that would be um, a problem for both of them if they were to be seen together and if things were to get out. All right. So she's she's a successful star through the twenties. Sound comes in, and she's she has mm-hmm. a stutter, so she's yes. quite apprehensive about sound. Uh, holds off for a good little while, although she appears in uh, uh, which is Hollywood Review, one of those. One yeah, of those so it's it's interesting because Hollywood Review of 1929 was the first her first sound film, um, but she doesn't talk in it; she sings. Right. Um, and then the first movie where she speaks dialogue was Marianne. 
So, um, and it's the same year, but it was after. And, you know, if we can talk a little bit about, about Marion's stuttering a bit, because she, people who stutter don't stutter when they sing. And when um, Marion was in the chorus, she would always ask uh, the directors if she could sing her lines instead of say them, because she could get through them. Um, and I was on a, a podcast the other day, um, podcast about stuttering, and they said that's it, the the progression of her sound career is really interesting because she, at first, you know, when sound came in. She didn't want to do it. She was totally, you know, uh, emotionally scarred by this whole thing and started to make movies. Then they got shelved, started to make another one. It got shelved. And um, by the time she did it, she the first movie that she did was singing. Then the second movie she did was speaking in an accent, which is also something that inhibits stuttering is speaking in an accent. Um, and then after that, then she started actually speaking lines. Um, so the progression of her sound career is really pretty fascinating from the stuttering perspective. Huh. Yeah. And I mean, one thing you talk about is that she would kind of improvise dialogue so that she mm-hmm. just could get around hitting words that would cause her to break down, basically. Right, exactly, because they, uh, they, she had certain, I heard it in her autobiographical tapes, you know, I have her, her autobiographical right. tapes, and when, when I was hearing her speaking, there were certain sounds, certain, uh, like, like D's gave her trouble, uh, P's gave her trouble, there were certain, certain letters, certain sounds that, that, that tripped her up, so by avoiding words that had those sounds in them, uh, but through imp- improvisation, and clearly she could think really quickly, you know, this, this uh, you know, riffing on lines and things. Um, she could get around those troublesome words and, and do her own thing, substitute them for words that were easier. Now, it's interesting. I mean, she's she's still a star at MGM into the mid-30s. Uh, anybody mm-hmm. who's seen Mank has seen a version mm-hmm. of her leaving the MGM lot for Warners eventually, uh, where she ended her career. But, I mean, there she is, a star at MGM. And yet it's notable that she's not in either of the all-star things that they did around that time, Grand Hotel or Dinner at Eight. Uh, right. You know, they've got everybody else in them, but I'm I kind of suspect that they didn't want to invite Hearst interfering in this picture that already had two Barrymores and a Garbo and everything else. You know, lots lots of ways right. that it could have trouble. <laughs> so now, if I'm not mistaken, Grand Hotel and Dinner at Eight, neither of those two were Cosmopolitan productions. Yeah, no, I imagine not. But but she's right. just she's so... around the place, but they're. You know, yes. she's so she, not in she's the... around, but she but she is uh, a cosmopolitan star. So cosmopolitan, when cosmopolitan joins MGM, um, it joins as sort of a loose. Uh, it, it it's not. It, it didn't it, it didn't completely meld into MGM. It was its own thing that was just sort of attached to it. Right. So um, so all of Marion's movies that she made at MGM were cosmopolitan productions um, because she was a cosmopolitan star. Um, and, uh, but of, of course there were other cosmopolitan movies that were made at MGM too, like the thin man, the thin man is a cosmopolitan production, but it makes sense to me that she wouldn't be in grand hotel 
or dinner at eight because those were made outside of Cosmopolitan. Yeah, but it still kind of seems. I mean, if they'd really wanted her in it, they'd have found a way. But oh, sure, yeah. I mean, I'm sure that Louis B. Mayer, you know, could have uh, gone to Hearst and and said, you know, we we really would like Marion in this movie, and he would. I'm sure they would figure it out. Yeah, but, it, but then he would have had Hearst on Grand Hotel <laughs> as well. So. Um, yeah. yeah, and that's what you see. I mean, he's always trying to kind of keep her in these early 20th century roles, essentially. I mean, you're talking about remaking plays from 30 years earlier or, or adapting plays from 30 years earlier and things like that. You know, she's right. really kind of up against this trouble. And as she gets older, I mean, they're they're like putting her with young stars so that, you know, she her age or just having been around and seeming a familiar you know a known quantity to audiences is sort of offset by Bing Crosby or Clark Gable or somebody being on a you know a fresh mm-hmm. face yeah yeah he like uh, as i was mentioning before he uh had a blind spot for Marion and he had a blind spot for you know to other people's perspectives on on Marion so he um, he couldn't shake this presentation of Marion as the person that he met in in the teens. You know, he still had that. He still saw her that way, even as she was approaching forty. Right. Uh, yeah. So, um, so the, Hearst is such a is such a complicated character. I mean, people have spent their lives trying to understand him, <laughs> and he's just so uh complex that it's nobody really comes close but marion got him marion understood him yeah better than anybody no i mean yeah. i actually i you know i probably felt as sympathetic to him as i ever have reading about the two of them together i mean it just yeah. clearly was you know a, a genuine and affecting love match even if they're you know nearly 40 years apart in age or whatever it was and yeah, thirty-four years apart. Thirty-four years, almost thirty-four years. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but uh, particularly when he's quite elderly and she's a little prematurely aged, it seems like, seems like, which is not terribly surprising given her alcohol consumption. Um, yeah, they're just they're kind of a sweet old married couple who are, you know, taking care of each other, except they're not. Married. Yeah. They were they were soulmates, no question about it. Uh, and it's sort of an unusual it's sort of an unusual uh, love affair because one the age difference, right, thirty four years apart, uh, and and two, it was at once romantic, um, mentor mentee, and uh, paternal. You know, like he was uh, he he was sort of like a father figure to her. Marion, of course, had a father, but but he was largely absent in her childhood and um and there was uh, there was something of that in there as well and some of her friends commented on that you know that it was uh that it was a very sweet um relationship yeah one of many things that uh citizen kane winds up uh, sort of painting a completely different picture of that stuck to her however untrue it happened to be um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I feel like, you know, this, this is a good year for her 
And, you know, things mm-hmm. have been getting better for her for like the last decade or two. Um, yeah. She's just as more appreciated as an actual talent now. I mean, what do you feel about where, you know, where does Marianne Davies stand in the, you know, in the celestial firmament as, uh, <laughs> as, as Lena Lamont might say. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, um, where does she stand? Or just how to, you know, how do you feel about how she's perceived now? Well, I I think that it's getting better. Uh, I still think that there's a lot of work to do in in terms of uh, helping people to understand exactly who she was. I think people are starting to get that she wasn't what Citizen Kane portrayed her as. But you know, that's sort of step one. Um, what what I hope people get from the book is that she was a philanthropist. That was really what she wanted to be remembered as. She wanted to be remembered for, for the children's clinic. Um, she, she was a, an incredibly smart woman, a uh, businesswoman, uh, and, and, uh, a good loyal friend. So that is, that's what I think people don't yet get. Um, that I would like them to get from the book, that not only was she not Susan Alexander, but she was also so much more, you know, just just a rare person. When I was when I was doing the book and I was interviewing people, what I kept hearing from the people who knew her was the same phrase. You know, people would always say, Marion was the most wonderful human being I ever knew. Mm. It's that 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 people need to that people need to get. She was a rare person, not just a good person, not just a nice person, but a I mean a really unusual human being. It sounds like you wound up liking her at the end of writing a book, which is not Absolutely. always guaranteed. Absolutely, and you know it was it was really. Um, uh, so I'll tell you when when I started started out to to do this project, I told myself I am going to accept whatever I find. Whatever I find about her is going to be what I write. I'm not going to try to make it good or bad or whatever. I felt like I could be unbiased. Um, and and this is what I found. And it was just such a joy. It was just such a joy to work with her because how can people, how can people write a biography on like Charles Manson or something? Right. <laughs> you know? Um, and Marion was just this incredible person. And that's, that is what I found. And so that is what I wrote. Hey, mister. How about some kisses? Well, not a bad idea. It'll cost you $50. It's a lot of money, isn't it? However, $50. Hey, what's all this? That's a box of kisses. <laughs> and you look like such a nice girl. Oh, mister. <laughs> Say, who are you, anyway? Don't you know who I am? Mm-hmm. I'm that Rarick girl. Rarick? Rarick? Oh, you mean nothing in this store over 10 cents? That's me. I know who you are. I'll bite. Who? No Sunday section is complete without you. You're just the bad boy of the 400, Mr. Berry Rose. No, no, no. I'm not bad, really. I'm just misunderstood. Oh, you're one of those fellows. One? I'm the original. (laughs) That's Marion Davies with Leslie Howard in 5 and 10 from 1931. Lara Gabrielle's Captain of Her Soul, The Life of Marion Davies is out now from the University of California Press.
Links for it and for the video releases of many of her films will be in the show post at nightreadville.com. Thanks to my guests, Lockie Heiss, Peter Bagroff, Anthony Labati, Gordon Nelson, and Lara Gabrielle. Music is by Kevin McLeod and Brett Van Donsel. Be sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice, and if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. Thanks.